Speaking of reliability, a podcast with good friends talking with you about reliability engineering topics. Welcome to Speaking of Reliability. This is Fred Schenkelberg. And good morning. This is Greg Hutchins. I need, you know, Greg, I just realized that I need one of those little coffee mug warmer plates because <laughs> my coffee is, I got like two sips left, but it's cold. So, <sighs> and it, <laughs> we were just chatting about, you know, I was outlining a topic that to jump into and, um, Coffee gets cold. You know, there's the second law of thermodynamics. You know, you start off something that's warmer than the ambient around you. And then even <laughs> if it's in a ceramic mug, it, it's still going to chill off over time. And one of the ways to deal with that is get a little plate, a little warmer, you know, draw some electricity, burn some fossil fuels, you know, whatever. Keep it warm. Uh, I could get an insulated mug. I could do all kinds of different techniques for it. But the lifetime of warm coffee once it's poured in your cup is limited and it made me think of the the exact same situation if i make a product or like we were talking in the last episode about we're bringing stuff back uh, factories back into the u.s reshoring and all kinds of problems that are occurring around that one issue that i didn't mention in that is that standing up a new factory often comes with lots of variability which often manifests in a shortened lifetime or additional failure mechanisms in the product once it gets to the field. Mm -hmm. All right. So let's say we got a smart reliability engineer or reliability manager, which includes all of the listeners of our show, obviously. Um, and they're bringing up a, a new factory and they're dealing with, they know they're going to have this variability that's going to impact the, the reliability performance of their product or system. All right. I know you've written about this for years and years and years, and I know that you always say I'm a one-trick pony. It comes through risk. Well, how do you how do you deal with that? How do you? All right, we've identified that there's increased variability, and it could affect, it's likely going to affect the lifetime of our product. What do we do? Uh, <laughs> what do you do? Okay. There's a, there's a reality right now that companies do not have the capability to build plants. Greenfield, expansion, extension, whatever you want to say then. So that's an opportunity. That's a, that's a risk, essentially. Um, you want to reshore. You want to bring the plant back to the U.S. or design, fabrication, assembly back to the U.S. You, uh, you know, it's going to cost more. We know that. But we don't have the capability products, sources, uh, people, um, knowledge, whatever you want to say, we don't have it. So there's an opportunity. Now, remember, risk is really two components, one downside consequence and upside opportunity. Most of us, 95% of us think risk is the downside consequence, but it's really upside opportunity. Well, that, that really came home to me when um, I remember is a story from HP is the, the uh, CEO said that you need to hit your numbers. You need to be, you say you're going to make 
two cents per share. You need to make two cents per share kind of thing. And I'm thinking this as an engineer. Well, what if we made three cents per share? And she illustrated that that's also bad. <laughs> I don't, and I didn't understand all the finance reasons for that and everything else. We made more money than we thought we would. And so, and she said, no, it's predictability, which is very similar to like control charts and process capability and stuff like that. You want it to be predictable. Today I made 10 widgets and they all were fine and they work well. And tomorrow I want to make 10 widgets and they all should work well and be fine. The issue is, is that one of the biggest drivers of the variability of the results that she was talking about was warranty. Was, you know, if we set aside a ton of money and our product's better than we expected it, then we just set aside a bunch of money that we didn't actually allocate properly. And it's a lost opportunity, which goes right to your your outline of there's two parts. The risk, you know, if we put a million dollars on the table and leave it there expecting to pay out warranty costs and we don't pay out the warranty costs. Well, we've just wasted the utility of that million dollars. It was the way she kind of, the way I understood it anyway. Is that what you're talking about? Yes. So let me propose two solutions to that question you have. And really the question is, the prime question is, you want to reshore and you don't have the internal capabilities. What do you do? No, it's not not that problem. It's we know that that because (laughs) reshoring is just one example of that. But let's say Mm -hmm. I'm in a factory and we got a a change of vendor or we put in a new production piece of equipment or it doesn't have to be a new plant at all. I think that just amplifies it. But we've recognized that if we change something, or I use air quotes here, make an improvement, or one of our vendors does and doesn't tell us about it, um, there's an, a chance that the product's reliability will be impacted. But how do I deal with that? If we, I, I've identified that risk, that there's a chance that there's a, in you know, reshoring is even higher, but there's an opportunity that our product's not going to work. What do I do? And, 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 you know, go back to our old suppliers. Well, that might not be an option anymore. That's what I mean is, is there's, there's all these options available for handling risk once if it's identified. So in a situation where we won't know if we're right or wrong until the product gets to the field and then it's out the door. What can we do to uh, mitigate or avoid, or I know there's all these techniques out there, but realistically, how do we, how does a reliability person or a plant manager coherently address it proactively? So let, let me give you a couple examples. Years ago, maybe 20 years ago, uh, designing and building uh, industrial plant, especially was a complicated process. You had investors, you had the designers, you had the project manager, you had the construction people, you had the inspectors. Now, a lot of them are doing design build. One person, one face, one stop, one shop. And we can do the same thing for reliability. In other words, uh, people who are doing reliability can provide the same type of service as, think of it as product reliability as a service. So that what they're doing is not only are they selling (laughs) reliability services, but they're also selling solutions. 
They're moving up the value chain and basically providing everything. And I think we can do the same thing. Eventually, maybe sooner than later, we'll have factory builders. You know? Yeah. And I've often advocated, you got to do what's the <laughs> right thing to do and all the other stuff. It's not just run the test or fill out a form or do stuff like that. I, I think that's a waste of talent. Uh-huh. I mean, I can only buy so much insurance or set aside so much for warranty uh, accruals. Those are setting up our ability to react if we have a bad product going out the door. If the percentage of failures is higher than expected, we can handle it, right? But that's not terribly, well, it's proactive in that we're anticipating or hedging that if it goes bad. Mm -hmm. But it's if we're working up the value chain, and it, when you started talking about design teams, that's where I tell everybody that it, reliability occurs at the point of decision during design. If, if you know, it's the design of the factory, the design of your supply chain, the design of the product itself. And so the reliability engineer needs to be involved with all of those things early on. So is that, I think that's what you're talking about is getting involved with those things. One part of it is it doesn't do you a whole lot of good to walk into all those team meetings and go, all right, there's all this chance that everything's going to go to hell in a handbasket and this product will never work and then walk out the door. That's not helpful. <laughs> right? Well, <laughs> so let's say you're selling a product and what happens is the buyer of the product doesn't have the capabilities, the people to uh, implement it or to even use it. So why not basically have a bundled service uh, for almost turnkey? You know, that's why, you know, I was proposing maybe a product reliability, bundled service, uh, including products, and maybe even a turnkey plant or turnkey cell. Yeah, well, that's all great, except now you need, you need that rest of that team that you're already working with to actually provide that service. Yes, yes, that's exactly right, because that team will basically be a turnkey. Whatever you want, they'll do it, you know. I don't think we're going to have a van full of 28, <laughs> you know, highly skilled, uh, multidiscipline, you know, folks rolling around from factory to factory, from company to company and doing it for you. Uh, that doesn't <laughs> sound feasible. Uh, well, right now we don't have the people, so that's not feasible. Well. Let's say, take it, take it down a notch. I'm in a okay. plant. I got a crew. We got 28 people. We all have our own vans. We go home and we come back to work each day. And the world around us is changing. And we've been dealing with supply chain disruptions. You know, we're talent is just not readily available. We can't hire enough people to manage the, the factory floor. We can't, you know, even getting uh, design engineers and keeping them is all of those issues are happening and all of them present an opportunity for our products to, to have reliability problems. Mm -hmm, right. Mm -hmm. Okay. We don't have, you know, Fred and Greg, you know, transitory one-stop shop. We'll just solve it all for you. I don't think we're going to set up a shop to go do that. They have to, this team that's already there sitting in their shiny new building. They need to figure it out. Right. But so how would you mitigate it? I mean, we've identified the problem. How would you avoid the issue? Well, design a better product. Well, that sounds trite. 
Well, I would actually advocate for you and a team of reliability engineers actually form a corporation, a reliability Inc. as a service, where you basically do the design, you do the implementation. Right. Yeah, but I'm, I'm saying there's, there's this t- the existing team, which is a much more common scenario. Yep. Take it down. If I'm going to do that as a service, right, I can do that within the company. So the folks listening to the podcast, uh-huh. they work in factories, they work in companies, they are designing and working on new systems and improvements and all this stuff all the time. So, And I'm quite sure most of them have recognized that all of these changes in our environment is going to lead to increased risk, Right. Mm-hmm, what mm-hmm. can they do? They're not going to go hire somebody, you know, Deloitte and Touche to come in and redo their database. That's just not going to happen. As a reliability engineer, what can you do? I'm trying to really press you on this one. Just take it down to help that, you know, 30 year old reliability manager figure out what are the steps they can do to mitigate, to avoid, to minimize, or I don't know what all that, what are the techniques that, so hiring an outside company to come in and save the day, that's an option. But what else can you do? So basically figure, you know, at that point, uh, basically get uh, data from the field, figure out what the what cause of the problem is. And well, then it's go too to late the, now. The product's in the field. Baking up earlier. <laughs> yeah. I've, been, I've been through one of those that cost a company uh, <laughs> and, could have, and it could have cost us. Yeah. 25 million. Yeah, no, but we all know of companies that they they said, well, just ship it, right? Startups especially. We've got to get market shares, just ship it. And then they're gone because the product doesn't work. They didn't think through the reliability. So part of it is the, the design, right? And getting the attention and bringing it up. But I, I one of the things I struggle with when I'm trying to pick your brain on this one uh-huh. is just saying there's a risk that it won't work is not good enough identifying the problem is not good enough. So what are the avenues to actually address it? So one is design it better, right? All right. Mm. Independent on the product and technology and everything else, it may take more time. It may take more money. It may add redundancy. There's lots of specific things we can do in improving the design for reliability, right? So that's one. Training is part of that, right? Get the talent that's putting this together to improve it. And the machines. Right. And and I've mentioned warranty, right? Mm-hmm. That's setting aside to anticipate that, but training your customer service team to understand that here's the risks and frustrations that may come in. That's, you know, I don't remember what the term of it is in the risk language of is being able to say, all right, it's going to happen. We don't have a way to avoid it but we can lessen the blow of it by being prepared is, is a option. Mitigation. Yeah. Is, <laughs> but the, it's the idea is, is that there's not a lot of good options. And, but I think the idea of saying that it's yes, there's lots changing and it can impact the reliability is not good enough. So I'm, my thought is that, yeah, a change in supplier or a new supply chain or a new factory or just, you know, lack of talent or whatever. 
is something's got to give. So more time, more budget, you know, uh, just uh, understand where the risks are. So let's say it's just supply chain. Well, which of our components are going to increase the amount of variability? Or if we put a new piece of equipment in, how does that actually going to increase the variability? It's sort of like that root cause thing, but it's before the failure occurs in the field. Then it has to be in the design phase. Yeah, definitely. I don't think you can get around that it has to be right up front from concept and early design. And by the way, you know, to a large extent, that's really product specific. Oh, yeah, definitely. Because to a large extent, almost all software <laughs> is shipped with the, with the concept of good is good enough and the users are going to be our beta testers, you know? Well, there's so. a lot of, there's a lot to that, uh, in hardware too. Trust me. Um, uh, well, I didn't want to say that, but yes, you're right. Um, but the, the downside of that now is, is that you don't, you get a reduced second chance to get it right. And, and especially when it's expensive and you're doing a multi-million dollar recall uh, for something that's just a disaster product. Um, I mean, there's all kinds of big outside, but the, the balance is how do you balance that investment in, in design time, in budget for the design, for component costs, all of those things uh, to get it right that you've, you've done the due diligence well enough. And I think my big issue is, is that the experience that we've had for the last 50 years mm-hmm, mm-hmm has dramatically changed because of all the turbulence in all these different aspects that go into how we go about creating products and not taking that into account and keeping to our, our old standard of, well, we did it in eight weeks last time. Let's do it seven weeks so we can be faster. And that's just not going to happen in my mind. I think the, the burden of the downside is got is not being seen or being balanced out appropriately. Which, by the way, that you know what you're really talking about is seeing the the lens is going to be a risk type of lens. Yeah, that's what I've been trying to get you. To, <laughs> to, to, well, what does that mean, right? How do you how do you go into a room and saying, "Hey, we have a problem here that this we just don't have enough time to get it right," but it's almost invisible given our decades of experience? A lot of that is counterintuitive because we need to spend more time doing the front-end thinking, the assumptions, the impacts, the risks, the stakeholders, and actually look into the future. And that whole process takes time. It takes money. And companies, consulting firms, don't want to invest in it. Mm -hmm. They want to basically ship to market, you know, time to market, you know, the... Well, that's what we've been rewarded for for that's decades. right, exactly, exactly. And you've you know you've got to do the front end thinking, the assumptions, and people don't want to pay for that. So the result is, if you don't want to do the front end work, you're going to see the unfortunately the result on the back end. And you know there's that classic quality quote that says anything that costs X amount of dollars in design phase will cost you a hundred X or a thousand X in the field. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, and it's 
I actually tried tracking down where that came from. The closest <laughs> I came to is a, a software development program that actually kept track of the cost to fix bugs um, early uh -huh. in the concept phase versus later <laughs> once it's fielded. Uh -huh. um, but that's the only <laughs> data set that I could find that was documenting that order magnitude increase in cost per phase. But I digress. Um, <laughs> but it's true in, in so many different circumstances, and that might not be 10x, it might be 6x, and it depends all kinds of other variables, but it, it certainly costs more later. Uh, but that doesn't catch the attention of the design engineer that is going to be working on the next generation product anyway, and they're not going to be, they don't feel the pain of the, because the ops team pays for warranty, for example. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, are you familiar with the term feature factory? Feature factory? Yeah, yeah. So it just in software development, instead of developing a new piece of software with all the risks, mm -hmm. attendant risks, what you do is you take an existing piece of software and you lard it with features that add no value to the user. <laughs> well, I, I remember decades ago, it was, there was a, uh, it was software mostly, but there was a bit of hardware involved with it is that uh -huh. I was sitting down with a team that was designing, it was a piece of networking gear and, you know, uh -huh. it, and it went from 300 baud to 600 baud to 1200 baud. And like every six weeks that we doubled the bandwidth of networking equipment kind uh -huh. of thing. And this one company showed me their product spec sheet of the thing they were designing. And I said, there's a lot of stuff in here. And he goes, which, which of any of these are important? And he says, well, we put a lot on there because if it's going to get leaked and then our competitors are trying to figure out which one of these things we're actually going to do. So half of their product specifications were fictitious just to confuse the competition. I was like, well, how is this helping your design team? Which ones of these are actually real? So we can't write that down because it'll get leaked. Well, think <laughs> about the poor user who, you know, whether you're using Word, has three, four, five hundred features to it, and you're using three or four. Yeah, and only those three or four work, which has been yeah, my experience. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and, and the bottom line of that little story was developing and designing and deploying products is a risky venture and companies naturally are risk averse. Yeah. So step one, identify the risks. Two is magnitude of it, right? But how big <laughs> of a deal is it? Is yep, I yep. find those two things help to start the conversation, but it quickly has to come into, well, what's our menu of options, you know, from buying insurance and setting aside more money for failures when they occur to actually spending the time up front in the design and concept phase and, and, and designing out the possibilities, fairs, reducing variability, uh, identifying which ones could cause the most harm and track those and monitor those, make those critical. There's lots of options. There's no doubt to it, but it's... Um, and de-risking. <laughs> right. Well, it's, if you, and when you say de-risking, I'm thinking is that if you recognize that there's an increased amount of variability in this one critical component... Can you alter the design to accommodate that amount of variability? Or can you uh, work with minimizing that variability? Or, or so can you accommodate it? Can you d decrease it? Can you, the impact of that increased variability, can we lessen it so it fails safe, for example, or it becomes rebootable or something like that, or easy to repair? Um, 
but just a quick brainstorm comes up with, you know, for any particular circumstance, you probably have options. The hard part is stopping to think about it. Yeah. And, you know, I'm, I'm sort of thinking about our discussion, our podcast today. It's really mushy, mushy. And the reason why it's mushy is we're talking about risk and decision making. And sometimes there's no deterministic answer. It's really a certain level of certainty, a certain level of experience, a certain level of heuristics that you really have to make when you make that decision of how do you make your product mm-hmm. <laughs> reliable, especially in the early part of the, uh, of the project. On the back part, you know, you've got a design, you can do certain types of studies, right? And you can do tests. But on the front end, all your decision making is going to be mushy. Yeah, deal with it. <laughs> deal with it. it. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, and it's but it's got to be part of the discussion. It's reliability in my experience is often left way late in the program. You know, it says, "Oh, we made prototypes. Here, go test them. See if it's reliable." You know, like, all right. Well, you're already you know late. <laughs> you're already missing the boat on this one. Yeah, it's got to be on the front end because, you know, what's the product? What's the, what's the service? What's the software? Is it disposable? You know, what's its life cycle, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, all those questions, which I think are risk lens questions, have to be addressed in the front end. Yeah. And it's, so the real answer here is that if you, with given our environment, in these days and, and from reshoring to uh, loss of talent across all kinds of, of, of trades and, and management skills and experience and, and higher expectations for the performance of their product is that you just have to make the case to get into the concept discussions and early, early designs and reliability is got to be a, a significant player in that process. Otherwise you're just too late. Yep, 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 100% right. <laughs> right. Well, if you're listening to this and if you're struggling with, you know, bringing up a new factory or creating a new product line or creating, designing, working with a design team and you want to start a corporation to go do one-stop shop, design everything, well, good luck. <laughs> That's all I'm going to say. It sounds like a lot of work for me. Um, I'd rather just talk about it. But the idea is, is that, you know, how's it going for you? What did you, are you seeing these kinds of risks manifest given the changes in supply chains and, and talent and everything else that we're seeing? How is it impacting you? And what changes in your process are you using to, to actually deal with the increased risk of the product reliability? Let us know. Head over to ascendoreliability.com slash go slash SOR. A couple of ways for you to get in touch with us there. Uh, Greg and I and the other hosts are available through LinkedIn and through our about pages. So plenty of ways for you to get in touch. And yeah, I'd love to hear what are the t- tactical things that you're doing in order to make a difference and to, to deal with the changing environment that we're dealing with um, in all the various aspects that we're dealing with. So I'd really like to hear from you on that. And it'd probably be a stepping stone for plenty of more topics to discuss in this thing. Um, so with that, I, I think, Greg, that we'll wrap <laughs> this one up. All righty, Fred. And I'd like to personally hear if anybody has got ideas for reliability as a service. Anyway, have a great one, Fred. <laughs> so you, you're going to take that one. I, I'm not going to go. All right, we'll talk to you later. Bye-bye. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs>
Thanks for listening to Speaking of Reliability. We invite you to join the conversation if you have a question or a topic that you think we should discuss in a future show, please let us know. You can find a comment box below the episode show notes or just leave a note as part of a review on iTunes.